Welcome to the Merkle, where we showcase the experiences and learnings of only the best builders and investors in Web3. I'm your host, Yang, and let's kick it off. Today, we have a very special guest, Daryl Wang, co-founder of Tangent.xyz. Having been a prolific crypto investor um, in the space since 2020, as an angel, Daryl has backed several notable projects such as Trader Joe. Daryl, great to have a fellow Singaporean on to chat. I'd love to kick it off talking about your background and how you eventually entered crypto. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it's nice to be here. Uh, and congratulations to the new podcast. Uh, very honored to be one of the earlier guests on the show. So um, a bit about my background. So I was uh, I graduated from the London School of Economics in 2019. Um, went down the traditional finance route uh, shortly after. This is before I sort of discovered crypto. So I was an investment banker, JP Morgan, for a better part of 18 months uh, out of school. And throughout, uh, as COVID hit, um, I had a bit more time on my hands, and so I started delving into crypto more actually by chance than anything else, and stumbled across DeFi, fell in love with it, fell down the rabbit hole, decided after three months of sleepless nights at yield farming that I wanted to do this full time. Um, so decided to quit my job, uh, take a massive pay cut, and join a crypto startup hedge fund. Uh, that, but that turned out to be Defiance Capital, which was led by Arthur Chong, or Arthur OX, as he's more commonly known. And over the next 18 months since 2020, really helped to build out Defiance Capital um, in terms of both uh, the team workflow process and uh, AUM as well. Um, and, you know, learned a ton, had a ton of fun in the bull market of 2021. And... I think in sort of March 2022, left Defiance to start up Tangent XYZ, uh, or just Tangent, uh, with Jason Choi, um, who is now my co-founder and partner. That's that's fascinating. You mentioned you had a traditional finance background. I, run, I wonder how that interacts with, I guess, how you invest and trade in crypto. Um, in late 2021, I think, um, you published this article titled Sharpening a Knife, um, talking about how you use certain mental models for trading and investing in crypto um, and how you update these mental models and use them as a general framework to make decisions very quickly in a fast-moving environment and market, just like crypto itself. Um, could you walk me through that framework? Yeah, so, uh, well, I guess I wrote that some time ago, but I guess I, sort of some context there is that I was a pretty keen investor ever since I was 18. So, um, and this was like before university, I was trading the equity markets in Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, obviously as a young kid, knowing nothing, you don't know much, uh, but you make, you know, through the experiences of the limited experiences, you try and learn where you can. Um, and so I typically had a traditional finance investor framework in mind going into crypto. And so I guess in, sort of the first six months of entering crypto, I really had to unlearn a lot of things that I previously picked up in traditional finance because, you know, concepts like looking at relative PE valuations, uh, looking at cash flow generation, generation capabilities really didn't match or align in crypto, right? Um, the most interesting things or the, the, the key determinants of driving price factors would usually be narratives and flows. 
So it was a pretty different style of investing that I took some time to get attuned to. Um, and th that I basically just call it my trial by fire. Um, you know, you, you make mistakes in the market, you lose money, hopefully not a lot. And then you learn the, the things that you need to learn in order to adapt and reframe your mental models uh, to suit the investing climate. And uh, I mean, arguably, and you know, what we've seen from Three Arrows as well is that a lot of people were very lucky in 2020 and 2021. Um, a lot of people made a lot of money simply by going long. And usually going long is typically the easiest way to position yourself as a investor um, for both a institutional and retail level, right? Like if you're just long crypto adoption, it's a very easy, almost lazy sort of narrative to have. Um, and so I would attribute a large part of the gains made by a lot of people in 2021 is to luck actually. And the, the skill or how good you are as an investor actually really came down to how much you protected yourself from the downside in 2022. So in 2021, actually, the when when you are in a raging bull market and you position yourselves in the right sort of social circles with the correct network, it's quite easy to just flip longs here and there. Like you'd be a new ticker every other week. Um, there'd be a particular new narrative. You generally get a sensing of like where you are in terms of the informational flow. So you get a reasonable idea of like, okay, who is dumping on me? Who's the one? How am I getting this information? Am I the source? Am I second, third, you know, third year down the road? Which will relate to like how much, how sort of diluted the alpha is. And then you typically make a call on like how big you want to bet. But you know, the, the game plan was very simple, right? You just long a token, it goes up and then you sell. So I would say that that wasn't very challenging. I think the most challenging thing actually was to keep having a certain amount of mental energy to keep rolling it, like to just nonstop keep grinding, finding the offer and rotating your positions. So I think that was the most challenging part. And then the part where I really felt that uh, I had to adapt and improve as an investor was when the sort of bear market hit. Uh, and this was, well, the first one was in May 2021. And then the second one was in April, May 2022. Right? I think these two events were really where if you fell back without a thesis, without your own thesis, and you just counted on crypto adoption, you just get absolutely smashed. So that was, I think, where a lot of people got hurt, where I learned a lot and where, you know, I feel that looking back in hindsight, how you, the, the quality of investor you are is determined by not how much, well, it's how much you make in a bull market, but also how much you save or protect on the downside when the bear market comes. Yeah, I remember grabbing drinks with you, um, I think in, uh middle of 2021 and that was the season where polygon was taking off and all the alt evm narratives were taking off um one of the hardest things to do in crypto is deciding whether to sell or not whether to roll over to another asset that might promise higher returns i was curious how you thought about that and uh, uh, do you have any any frameworks there 
Yeah, so it's it's typically very tricky. I think when to sell is a much harder decision as to when to buy. Um, and you know, we've all have our own trades where we sell way too early, uh, and then we cut, we kick ourselves after you know, token ABC just goes up another ten x after you sell. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with retail sentiment. Uh, no, how many data points are telling you that this is already overbought? Um, so I think I use. Well, a couple of factors. Number one, you, there are some technically technical chart related factors like uh, OI, uh, funding rates, um, and, and that kind of stuff. And then the other one is looking at Twitter, looking at how much it's being talked about on Twitter, looking at who are the proponents that are promoting it on Twitter. Um, and lastly, obviously, is fundamental adoption, because if fundamentally the protocol is doing very, very well, there's really no reason to sell it, uh, even if like all your other signals are telling you, you know, this is all about. Like if you, uh, a, a great example is if you look at Axie Infinity, um, in a bear market in May 2021, it was at $3. And if you looked at it when Axie 3X at $10, where everything else was flat in, in May, right? There, were, there was a pretty strong argument that it, it sort of topped at $10. I think OI was going up, um, a lot of people were talking about the only coin that was going up in May 2021. Um, and, you know, you can make it sort of a, an argument that says that, uh, you know, you should maybe start selling or taking profits in your exit position at $10 or even $15. But if you realize you look at the player growth uh, and you look at the sentiment that was forming around play to earn changing, you know, the Philippine economy, that was massive. So you cannot discount fundamental in the rate of adoption, uh, uh, fundamental adoption and the strength of the ratings when they really take off. So, so yeah. So if you sold Axie, you know, ten dollars, you would have kicked yourself when you went to like you know high about one hundred fifty. So it's obviously it's pretty nuanced. I've bag held, you know, twenty x winners up all the way down. I've sold things at the top as well. Uh, I would say it's an, always a learning process. And right now, I think right now is a pretty good example, right? Like uh, the ETH merge is an excellent example of like, um, how how will you determine whether something is overcrowded or not? Um, so to put things in perspective right now, I think with all the events that have played out so far since sort of, May 2021, uh, 2022, when, when 3AC went insolvent. I think that the, the narrative is quite exhausted. Like, if you think about what is there to come uh, for ETH or the merge as an event, and you think about the narrative and the marginal buyers who have been piling on to this ETH merge trade, uh, it seems quite a lot of signs point to narrative exhaustion to me when when ETH was at 2k so i think yeah that's a pretty good example of of how to determine like when to sell stuff so if you were long but i think just sort of sidetracking and going to this ETH merge as an example i think that was a very clear window to put on long positions when 
ETH was at 1 to 1.1k. I unfortunately didn't fire, but looking back in hindsight, there was a very clear window there when Three Arrows was getting liquidated. And uh, one by one, Babel Finance was coming out and saying that they were going insolvent. And then a couple of other smaller, I think, lenders were, were coming out as well. You know, Voyager was coming out with their, with their insolvency letter. And ETH just didn't break 1K. I think that was the time where you were like, all right, all the full selling is more or less done. Everybody's on the sidelines. There was super, a lot of strong points that say everyone's on the sidelines. And then you just, you should have like giga long there. I didn't because I was funded by Marco, as was many people. Um, but if you look at it from there, and then you look at where that trader sort of got onto, where ETH has 2X in, I would still say more or less a bear market rally. Uh, it really does seem like the, the narrative has, I think, passed its peak, or if it hasn't, it's close, um, simply because of you know, the timeline of where the merge is, which is in about a month, uh, Goedy has passed, or most uncertainty about the merge is more or less done and priced in already. So on the topic on narratives, then, um, how did, how are you assessing the current narratives um, in crypto today? And do you see that some might be more permanent than others? So I think right now we're actually in a situation where there's an absence of narratives. Like if you look on chain, um, there, apart from the merge, right, there isn't really anything going on with the exception of Pseudoswap. Uh, I would count Pseudoswap as an individual protocol receiving very strong product market fit, but that's kind of separate. If you ignore that, nothing really in crypto has really pushed adoption or, or, or made things exciting in the last, I'd say, six to 12 months. If you look at DeFi, it's just lending protocol on chain A going to chain B, or it's another yield aggregator popping up that makes you know a marginal maybe instead of a version one it becomes a version 1.1 kind of improvement which isn't particularly exciting i think 2021 was the era of alternative l1s and their ecosystems taking off right now we're seeing sort of a minor resurgence back to ETH-based, eth-based uh ecosystems as a result of the merge so you know you had optimism having a decent run and now Arbitrum also having a, a reasonable run as well. Uh, it seems to me that these are short-term narratives. I don't think they will have meaningful links to it. Um, uh, uh, most certainly for optimism. Uh, for Arbitrum, it remains to be seen, but I still am of the opinion that optimistic rollups are a temporary solution. So if I'm making bets on a three to five year time horizon, I don't think I will be making bets on optimistic rollups. That being said, uh, the ZK vertical is still so nascent that it's very hard to make bets based on traction uh, for anything there, right? I mean, the only thing that's really like lives like DYDX using Starware, and even then they've sort of moved to Cosmos already. So it's Right now, you're really, if you're based on traction, there's really not much to go about, honestly. 
um, that's where sort of the VC, the very early stage seed-based visionary investing comes into play, right? Where you have to imagine a world where certain things will play out. Um, and I, I guess in terms of narratives that I think will stand the test of time, um, I think the first one is how NFTs will continue to be used uh, as means of ownership assets that people can you know proudly display or use in the metaverse or whatever you want to call it uh so that is one thing so nfts anything to do with NFTs, so nft financialization nft trading um i think these are verticals that would be quite i'm quite confident making long-term bets in these things uh the second thing is game five which has really fallen off a cliff um ever since may 2022 um everything i think most game five tokens or play to earn tokens are down like 95 to 99 percent um i still think that this is a vertical that makes a lot of sense where this digital assets and a distribution distributed ownership economy uh will catalyze or will fuel adoption for work through games in a way where we've never really seen before um, I think the thesis is taking a bit longer to play out than expected, but I am still making bets on individual games as well as the financial infrastructure for these games when they do take off. Cool, let's transition to the VC side of things here. Very exciting. I'm sure a lot of listeners here would also be keen to hear about uh, what you've been building at Tangent.xyz itself. Tangent is known as the Web3 Founders Personal Board of Advisors, and your deck specifically emphasized that it's neither a VC nor an incubator. So tell us more about its mission and vision. Yeah, so I think when, when Jason and I founded Tangent, we really tried to think to look at Web3 investing uh, and use first principles to sort of determine or see how investing could be improved on as a process. I mean, in, in traditional, in, in Web3, we're so focused on like, you know, pushing innovative new solutions for DeFi, for gaming, for NFTs, but on the investing side, everything is still very, very traditional finance based, right? You're still using conventional VC models with a 220 structure. Um, and I think with the new elements that crypto brings in terms of earlier time to liquidity, uh, using tokens as a way to bootstrap uh, adoption, and uh, it, it's it's quite, there was an opportunity there for us to take advantage of. And one of the things that we both felt when working in VCs was that we couldn't find we couldn't provide the amount of support that we wanted to to our portfolio companies. And this was because in the model for VC investing crypto was broken. Uh, it was, you were incentivized as a VC to spray and pray in crypto. This is because number one, product market fit is very hard to predict. So the more bets you make, the likely, the higher likelihood that you you bet on something that actually works, and the return profile was so skewed that if you make a hundred bets and you get ninety nine wrong, but you get one right, and that one returns like a five hundred x, which was you know quite doable, uh, then you five x the fun, and usually you don't make ninety nine wrong bets um, in crypto. 
because with the shorter time to liquidity, even if you're wrong, uh, there's a decent chance that you can sell your tokens um, at a certain point in the future and, and still retain uh, regain some capital back uh, on wrong bets. So the risk reward structure was very, very skewed, which is why you saw so many VC funds pop up in 2021. Um, and, and this led us to tangent where we tried to invert the model on its head. We were like, okay, we're willing to forego some EV um, and choose to really double down on a concentrated portfolio, uh, portfolio of, of bets. So we're, we're aiming to have not more than 20 investments every year uh, with a very you know direct sort of relationship with them where we come in at a very early stage. We help them go from zero to one in the sense that if like they're at the MVP stage, we beta test their, their product, uh, we introduce their product to prospective stakeholders that they want to work with. Um, we, and you know, if they want a consequent fundraising round, we help structure their cap table. Uh, we introduce them to the next set of series A or C or, you know, or, or more mature investors. So we provide all the services that they need to get out of that sort of MVP stage and then get to a, a get to a, a place where they can scale out and move their product from one to hundred. And then once they reach that, that sort of stage and then that maturation level, then we pass them off to more mature investors and then we go dormant. So in that sense, our portfolio help and, and, and service is really focused on the early part of uh, a protocol's life. And then once you're mature already, you don't really need us anymore. And then we're like, okay, we're done. Nice. I'm sure you have a lot of inbound um, for this tangent program, even in the hundreds. What gives you uh, the confidence that a project is someone you'd want to accept? What are you looking out for specifically? So I think for, and this is a bit cliche, but actually a good track record and a warm referral from trusted parties actually really, really make a difference. Like we've tried... Um, well, we've observed the difference between cold applications, meaning just naked inbounds uh, versus warm referrals. And the standards really are very different. And if you've sort of built a protocol before in Web3 even, um, it really like the, the chance of you succeeding again is much higher than if you hadn't built anything before. So I think track record and past experience is actually something that we really pay attention to. That being said, we're not afraid to back first-time founders if they show and demonstrate the ability to think about or think critically about how do you attain product market fit, how do you obtain your first 1,000 users, where's your drive and your motivation coming from, what problem are you solving, um, and you know how are you significantly better than anything out there in the market today. So, and we feel that when when we think about things this way, the amount of applications that we receive um there are a lot of good ones but a lot of them fail to meet this bar uh a lot of them are unsure it you know many of them even like when they've built like sort of the mvp out they really haven't thought critically about how you attain users which is really the most important part and you know this brings me to pseudosop which is the most interesting application today um, because all, what Owen has built with Sotosop is, you know, just basically 
the underlying AMM architecture to increase NFT liquidity, right? And what we've seen is just random people start using it and it literally has sort of incubated or a hosted a whole set of different you know nfts that are launching only on pseudosol that are trying to get you know narratives formed around them and trying to like you know they're like mini sort of pump and dump sort of schemes i mean that's not a really good example but like the point is pseudosol is getting proper unincentivized traction um via what what they're pushing to the market which is you know deepening nft liquidity via amps so it's it's very very difficult to achieve what they've done i think a lot of people don't realize that um and when and i'll say that a lot of protocols if they can replicate what pseudosol has done uh in their sort of first month or first two to three months of going big live on open beta i think it's fantastic so we're looking very closely at what owen does with pseudoswap um you know obviously there's already a live token called xmon that is trading and that's been doing fantastically well which as it should um but but yeah i think pseudoswap is one of those rare interesting zero to one type of products that uh we are very keen on backing Cool. Now, a lot of people are going to have differing views on this, but speaking of founder capability, do you index more heavily on domain expertise, domain experience, or do you index more heavily on crypto nativeness? Definitely domain expertise. I think crypto nativeness can be learned pretty easily, but domain expertise cannot be replicated. So we, it's almost no question that we, we focus on, on domain expertise as, as what we prefer. But that again, we've seen a lot of teams where which only have domain expertise and have no nuance about you know Web three and how to connect with crypto communities, and that may be a red flag for us as well. So you would need some crypto nativeness, but you it's not like top priority. Like in terms of the top things that we look at when evaluating a protocol, it's like four or five on the list. How then do you access um, founder motivation? This one is a lot more subjective. Um, this can be only done via you know, extensive due diligence. So if you go on multiple calls with the founders, you get a sensing of you know, what their aspirations are, why they started the protocol, what would they do if they fail, um, and what have they done in the past. And then you look at your reference checks as well. So you call up their past employee, employers to see how does this guy work? How does this guy think? Would you back him? Um, it's and obviously it's always a it's a you never get it always right. Um, there are a lot of times that we get it wrong. But I think founder motivation is one of the most important factors that if you can suss out correctly will really, really help you. And it's very difficult to suss out, by the way. Um, because some people I think and 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 we we attention we, we've developed our own internal sort of evaluation sheet uh, based on certain factors because we want to sort of protect ourselves against salesman bias so very often when you meet uh, fluent sort of ceos uh, which know how to pitch themselves really well you come away from a meeting feeling very impressed um, but 
just because they're a good salesman to you does not necessarily mean that they are a good founder. So you want to always check your bias uh, on that as well. So doing due diligence on venture, you definitely have to dive deep into the technicals of the project. Um, do we read the white papers, read the documentation and things like that. But almost by the definition of it being a technical innovation, um, you would never have a complete view in that view of how the entire project works and the intricacies of uh, the entire system. Um, curious how you balance that out uh, with um, your time constraints as a VC. Especially, you know, since um, there is a certain point in time where knowing more about a certain project doesn't actually help you make your decision. Well, I think because we're only looking at three to five protocols every quarter, we can't afford to dive deep on things that we're really interested in. Um, I would say that underlying tech, while important in, in terms of allowing the protocol to function, is usually not the most important thing in determining the success of adoption, right? So for very technically oriented founders, we really try and we, we make, obviously the, the base stance is they are more knowledgeable in you know, vertical XYZ than us. Uh, we're not like, I'm not going to contest a college professor that's been, you know, developing alternative to black schools on his options theory if he's building an options protocol, right? There's, there's no way that I can, you know, push him or, or debate him on certain things there. But what, you know, we then focus on is, okay, now that you've built, you know, a pretty interesting new primitive uh, using different technology or a different, a different method um, to, to approach the problem, how do you get your first thousand users? And when you grill these technically oriented founders, a lot of them haven't really thought about uh, user adoption, how do you, you know, how do you connect with your users? What do your users really want? Uh, and these questions are a lot more pertinent, in my opinion, to success than, you know, is the tech, is the tech, underlying tech really, really superior? I think, I think that, um, really comes down to, or I mean, that, that really matters a lot more when you're looking at layer ones, for example, uh, because then uh, the differences in tech will really, you know, result in you standing out. But even then, right, your BD, the layer one's BD exec capability is probably as important that, as tech uh, in determining success. Who I know we briefly touched on this just now, but I'd love to visit, revisit this from a VC perspective. What are some white spaces you see in crypto and what do you, what, what are you excited about that has to be built over the next few years? So I think with the advent of Tornado Cash sanctions by uh, the US SEC or something, um, I think privacy on chain is very important, right? Like privacy is a fundamental, right? Uh, what's been happening with regards to US regulations is clearly the wrong step for the, the wrong, the wrong step forward. Um, eventually, if you imagine a world where the majority of your transactions or your interactions with finance is done on chain, you will need some form of privacy. Uh, how that is, how that will unravel is still to be decided. There are many ways it can, it can uh, sort of unravel. Right? To give you, you know, a couple of different options. The first one is a 
L1 specific privacy chain. So examples are like Zcash, Monero, Secret, where all your transactions are, are hidden. Uh, another example is privacy uh, specific app-related privacy uh, solutions. So let's say if Aave can include, you know, certain functions that allow you to deposit uh, and, and take out loans without revealing your your, your wallet, I guess, uh, that could be quite interesting as well. So in terms of, and, and this would be really heavily determined by regulation, right? Um, if, regula if the regulatory boards you know, take a hard hammer and clamp down and say, okay, you know, nothing, uh, everything should be KYC or AML from, you know, from the get-go, then you probably need an L1 sanction, uh, an L1 of, you know, governed or, or green-lighted or white-labeled solution. So let's say the SEC says, okay, we will only, uh, we have trust, we have partnered with Secret, for example, and then everyone who wants to interact with Secret, your, your transactions can be private, but you have to KYC with like the US government or, or some form of regulatory body in order to interact with the blockchain. That is one example, which I think will be quite bad, but it's, it's, I can imagine the reality in which, in which that happens. Um, uh, another situation is, you know, regulatory bodies interact directly with applications and say, okay, if you want to use protocol ABC, then uh, you're going to need to KYC with us first. Um, that's also possible. Uh, and I think our, I think Aave will very likely go down this path as well, where they create like, you know, with their institutional pools, they're already creating like permission to KYC pools where in order to interact with them, you need, you know, to KYC yourself. Um, so that could be another alternative. Uh, but yeah, so, so I think privacy in its current form definitely needs to change. Uh, it's very, very tricky, as I said, to bet, like if you want to make bets on privacy, there's so many ways you can go wrong, right? Um, you know, you can have a particular thesis and then your regulatory body comes out and says this, you know, that it basically just torpedoes it, right? So, so right now we're still looking at, at solutions. I, we haven't made any bets uh, specifically on, on this yet, but you know, there's something I'm pretty keen on. Uh, the other thing I'm pretty keen on right now is NFT financialization. Um, I think NFTs right now, we're really only scratching the surface in terms of what digital ownership means to people. I think in the generation below us, digital ownership will really be a pretty strong concept on par with you know physical ownership. So, and right now the infrastructure that allows you to use or pledge uh, your digital assets is really non-existent. So, uh, I think this is quite a blooming, that is, this is a sector with a lot of white space, but maybe three to five years out in the future, as opposed to like, will we see this happen in the next three to six months? Yeah, I think not enough people think about that, um, the, um, how a permission environment might emerge and grow within crypto. I think throughout the adoption of new technologies, um, it has always been the implementation of clear regulatory frameworks that eventually um, led to um, mass adoption beyond the early majority of people.
and that is definitely something we should be watching out for. Yeah, I mean, if you if you if you think about it, like if you just imagine crypto ten years down the road, right? And if you imagine one to three billion people on Earth interacting on chain, there is no situation in which the governments just allow everyone to roam free as is today. Right now, it's really the wild wild west, and eventually there will be sanctions put up. There will be isolated ecosystems carved out. Um, and it is what it is, right? And so you just have to adopt and, and, and try and imagine that future and then try and make bets based on what you think, maybe. Right, that was a great conversation. I'd love to throw in an open question here. So if you had a crystal ball that could tell you something about the future with perfect accuracy, but you could only ask of it one thing, what would you ask of it? Oh, well, I, if... if if that is the case, I don't think I'll be asking crypto specific stuff. I mean, I'm I'm very curious about when when humans as a species uh, obtain interstellar travel. So I think that would be cool. I think crypto right now provides us with the most interesting melting pot where you, speculation, innovation, and technology all coincide, um, which is why it has attracted so many people and why it's so interesting to so many different parties, uh, including myself. The most important thing to, to me for crypto right now is accelerating owner, decentralized ownership of different assets to the people. I think a lot of people look at crypto and say, you know, we want like a decentralized uh, money, for example, right? That doesn't really hit home to me. I think right now income inequality in general is stems from the way systems uh, and infrastructure is set up right now. So conglomerates uh, own the majority of assets, the majority of purchasing power uh, and power in general, right? And I think when you start introducing elements that are provided by crypto to allow for decentralized ownership, uh, you really give power back to the people. And that I think to me is very interesting and should be a cause worth fighting for. Super, Daryl. Um, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for sharing all your knowledge uh, about the world and crypto itself. Um, and look forward to chatting and hanging out in Singapore. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Uh, and looking forward to, to seeing your, 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 your podcast. If you found this episode helpful, do give us a like and subscribe. Do put down in comments anything or anyone you'd like to see in this show. You can find me on Twitter or Telegram at Yoitsyoung. That's Y-O-I-T-S-Y-O-U-N-G. Thank you for listening and see you soon.